Downloads of the show are available at Podomatic.com or the Podomatic mobile app. Hey kids, you are listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, and this show is Fish Out of Agua with Michelle Carlo. Today is Tuesday, July 3rd, 2018. The city is sweltering, and we're going to be playing some hot music for you today. And we also have a fantastically smoking interview with a guest artist we can't wait to bring to you. But right now, get ready for the night. And you all remember what summer nights are for. At least, I hope you do, because I sure do. Woohoo! We're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. A little housekeeping before we move on with some more songs and our guest artist interview. Did you know that you can listen to Radio Free Brooklyn on the go, on your run, in your car, anywhere that you can take a phone? Just download the Radio Free Brooklyn app from the iOS App Store or Google Play, and you can listen to independent community freeform radio wherever you go. You can find the iPhone app by going to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org forward slash iPhone and the Android app on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org forward slash Android. Download today and listen to Radio Free Brooklyn 
wherever you are, because remember, we are what Brooklyn sounds like. The song we opened with was called Because the Night, and it's from the Patti Smith group from her 1978 album called Easter. It's a song that was co-written by Bruce Springsteen and also put out at a recording, an album that he did that summer. Oh, crazy summer of 1978, man. Well, all summers are crazy, right? It just depends on your point of view. Well, we had some rock to open, and now we're going to have a little bit of glitter and glam. We are back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. You just heard Zicky Stardust from David Bowie 
from The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spider of Mars, which came out in 1972. There was a fantastic retrospective of all of David Bowie's work at the Brooklyn Museum this year. It started in the spring, I believe sometime in March, and it's going to close on July 15th. So you, if you haven't seen it, do what you need to to go see this thing. I mean, you don't even need to have been an actual fan fan to marvel at the wonder scope of this breathtaking, versatile artist's work. Okay, enough of me plugging David Bowie, who doesn't need plugging because he is an icon who now belongs to the ages. So now, kids, it's time for another icon that belongs to our age because it's time for my favorite part of the show. Whoa, whoa. Welcome to Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist of the Week! Woohoo! As we continue to count down to episode 100! Well, we're not there yet. Anyway, let me welcome someone who I've met very recently and who I cannot wait to present to you. She's an amazing storyteller and she does a bunch of other things that we're going to find out about. So please welcome Carla Katz! Very honored to be here. Oh, cool. I'm very excited. I'm excited. I really am very thrilled that you asked me. Oh, appreciate it. Well, you know, you, you, you fit the criteria. That's all <laughs> I'm going to say. You fit my agenda. I like your work. Appreciate so, it. So thank you. You're most welcome. So let's talk briefly about uh, how we met, yeah, which is very recent. Fun. Yeah, very recent. A show at the tank. Yes, it was um, Danny Ortiz, who will be a guest in the, on a future episode. He did a series at the tank called... The Day I Should Have, and this one was The Day I Should Have Left the Past in the Past. Yes, it was a five or six show... Um, series, series yeah. um, and it was different things. The day I should have left work, the day I should have left the party, the day I should have left home, and our segment yeah, brilliant was... brilliant idea. Yes, yeah, so brilliant. And we were the day I should have left the past in the past, and I had heard of you. And I had heard of you. But I had never seen you, yeah, yeah. and I thought you were great. great. And here you are. Woohoo! Yeah. Yeah. So, um, as I found out about three minutes ago, you're from Jersey. From Jersey. Not a native New Yorker. No. I actually was born and raised in Jersey. I live in Hoboken now, but which is, you know, closer than Brooklyn to Manhattan. But I, you know what? I always considered Hoboken, and please don't take this the wrong way, kind of like, um, like the Upper West Side for people that didn't want to live in Manhattan. Or the Murray Hill. Well, it's sort of the opposite age-wise, right? It's a really, really, really young town. It's, mm, but um, it's a very cool town with cool working class. Yeah, well, it has, a, yeah, Frank Sinatra. Community. Frank Sinatra's yeah. mom was uh, working for on women's rights, let's say, back in the day, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's very, uh, it's very interesting. I've been there since about 2002. Wow. So where yeah. did you grow up? I grew up in Patterson. Where is that? Patterson is in North Jersey. It's probably one of the... Uh, along with Newark and Camden, uh, one of New Jersey's roughest cities. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, tough wow. town. Wow. Tough wow. town. You look like you're a tough girl. Yeah. You know, yeah. growing up Jersey, you got to be tough. Oh, my gosh. Like, I grew up in the Bronx, so I get it. Yeah, I get it. I get yeah, it. Exactly. It's like it, you, 3 o'clock, yeah. outside, schoolyard. Yeah. So um, did you come from a working-class family? I did. My dad's um, 
from uh, the East End of London, and he grew up there. And wow, uh, like East Enders. East Ender, Cockney. Yeah. Cockney. Does he sound like Michael Caine? He did. He like you know he when when I was young, he would say things like "shut your north and south," and as he got older, his his accent became very genteel, and he started to sound like a BBC commentator. Oh, my God. Like, Hello, how are you? I'm just yeah. going to make one little tangent for a second. For the youngs that are listening, Michael Caine, is he still alive? I yes, think so. I think so. Yeah, so he's um, a British character actor that's known for Cockney roles, which is kind of the equivalent of being like a native New Yorker. Just to let you know, Google him if you want to know more. He's fascinating. GTS, Google that shit. Yeah, my dad was a factory worker once he got here, and uh, my mom worked in was he like illegal? a retail shop. No, you know, he was... I gotta a, ask, you know. He, he, he has a weird story, because he was a soccer player, and he came here recruited by the American Air Force to play soccer for the American Air Force team, and they sent him back to Europe to play. I actually recently found on Ancestry a bunch of the Stars and Stripes newspapers, which I didn't even know they produced, that the military produces, that talked about the games and mentions his name. Wow! Yeah. That is mad cool. So Katz is not a traditionally British name. Well, it's a traditionally Jewish name. Right. So they're... So you're, 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 he's a British Jew? English Jew, There's yep. not that many. Well, that's because he was born and raised there, but his... The grandparents are all Romanian. Oh, okay. Did they? Did his grandparents go there to escape the war? Yes. My dad. My dad actually was one of the kids that was um, evacuated out of London. Oh, to that, go to, to upstate, into the upstate England. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, during Operation Pied Piper. Well, millions of kids, which you know, in this moment that we're having right now, and thinking mm-hmm. about children being sort of left on their own, um, millions of kids were taken from their homes in London to the countryside to be with uh, families that were supposed to be caring for them because they thought they could protect the children from the bombing. Right, um, because London and its environs was getting was called the Blitz. The Blitz. It was getting it was bombed into oblivion yeah. every friggin' night. Whole neighborhoods went in flames. Exactly. I mean, people don't understand. No one in this country knows what it's like to live through an attack like that. So for someone who's American like you or I, it's abstract yeah. unless we have a close family member that could tell us about that. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. He, so he was relocated to a host family? Yeah, but it was, you know, it was a bad scene. So he got a shitty set. Oh, that sucks. And, I'm yeah, sorry. They, yeah, they tied him to a tree outside. Fuck! And he ended up escaping eventually somehow naked and went to a convent and eventually oh my made God. his way back to his family. Oh, my God. You, know, so you I, think about that. He was eight years old. Jesus. Right? Exactly. So your dad is a survivor. Yeah. He's he a real is, survivor. Wow. Is he still alive? No. I'll, I'll actually mention and talk about oh, my dad okay. in my cool, cool, story. Cool. One thing that I also want to make a little sub-tangent uh, on is I love Cockney slang. Ah. Like, like how... Uh, uh, tr- wait, uh... Trouble and strife means wife. Wife, apples and pears, stairs. Stairs, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you uh, remember any others? Rory O'More. My, my dad used to say Rory O'More for door. Rory O'More for door. I love that. <laughs> I and, know. like, do people still do that? They do, but they shorten it. So uh. they don't say the whole thing. Like, the, you know, so it's sort of like apples and pears, they'll just say pears? Okay, so it's like, it's becoming, oh, it's, still, yeah, it's, it's like emojis. It's yeah, becoming yeah. emojified. Right. I love language. Yeah. So what was your mom's background like? My mom's Italian. My mom's family's from Reggio Calabria. Ah. Um, her, her father. Southern Italian. Come, yeah. Red sauce. Yeah. Yummy. She made, her brother was raised over there, her older brother, but 
she was born here, mm. barely, but born barely. Here. Wow. So yeah. Did did you, was your family artistic or education oriented? No, quite the all? opposite. So you know they were big believers in work. Of and course they were. Uh, well, being if you're a first gen child, right? That's exactly. that's the whole first gen experience. You yeah. make money, don't live like me. Yeah, they weren't. You know, they're, my dad was very funny. My mom's actually funny and witty, my, um, but they had no sort of expressive arts and creative okay. side. So nobody was like a repressed actor, like no, no, nobody sang in the shower no. and would shut up. Well, my dad listened. would sing. My dad would sing. Not well, but he would, he would sing. <laughs> he, he would sing. No, but uh, yeah, no, actually they, unlike most first gen, they didn't want us to go to college. They thought really? uh, there's three of us on the middle child. They thought it was a waste and that we should just get jobs and work. And so they ended up with uh, my sister, who a, was a first grade teacher, me as a lawyer and professor, and my younger brother, who's a heart surgeon. So they got a lot of education out yeah, of three kids they that sure they did. said, you know. So, so they said no college, but everybody went to college anyway. Yeah, and we put ourselves through. Wow. So, so did you, but did you have any artistic inclinations mm-hmm. yourself as a child? I did. I actually was... Uh, I was always a reader. Mm. Was um, that encouraged for you uh, growing up or no? You know, there's, my mother loves to tell the story that she was shocked that I could read. Like, she was like, we never read to her. Somehow she figured out how to read oh before, my God. before kindergarten started. Oh, so my God. It's like one of her stories. I'm like, what? This You don't look good in this story, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Did they, like, read uh, the newspaper or anything? Did she read, like, Life magazine or Photoplay or, like, the first we people? Had, we had newspapers, right. We had magazines and newspapers in the house. Not a lot of books. Um, but I did draw and paint and they encouraged that and I did that all through school and I um, were, you, were you the only sibling that did that yeah ah yeah. so you were the odd one out I was the odd one you were the fish out of agua I was ah. <laughs> uh, and I actually thought about it. I was uh, my high school art teacher sent a portfolio of my work to Pratt wow and they offered me a scholarship and my father absolutely refused to let me go there because it was too dangerous. It was in Brooklyn. Was like, yeah, it was in Brooklyn. It was, was, it, a, it was actually tough at the time. I was like, we grew, I grew was up this, in Patterson. Was, although Pratt is an amazing school. To it be is, offered a full is. scholarship. But you know, it's sort of interesting. Like your life becomes different by the choices you and other people make for yes. you, right? Yeah. And I mean, I'm still, so I, um, I continued to pursue photography. I stopped mm. painting. Um, but, and I still am a photographer on top of everything else. But it kind of, you know, that change led me to the path that I ended up on in my life, which was spending my life in the labor movement. Let me backtrack a little bit. How did you feel about that at the time? Were you like 18 or 19? Younger. Younger. I went to um, the community college instead of my last year of high school. So Mm. I was 16. So you were smart. Yep. Smart. Mm. Smart growing up. Um, Then went to Boston University, Johns Hopkins. Well, they let you go to Boston. Yeah, eventually, you know, there was eventually, it was just like, um, they didn't really have control after a point. Well, after a certain point, yeah, 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 it's true, it's true, it's true. You're you're like, see ya, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I kind of like flipped around, I transferred a bunch of times and ended up in my last year at Rutgers. 
in back in back in back Jersey, in Jersey wow. because of a boyfriend well, it's always, who I it's was always going to be with the rest of my life. Of course, that only lasted another year. And <laughs> that was over. Isn't that always the That's way? Always the way. Um, but it was but it was fortuitous because I I took classes that I now teach at ah. Rutgers in labor studies. So you've gone full circle. Yeah, so it was very you, weird. Did you go to law school at Rutgers? No. So, okay. I, so what, I, what made you decide to become a lawyer? Um, I had spent several decades in the labor movement as a first as an organizer, then as a like a business agent, staff rep they call it, and then I was the elected president of New Jersey's biggest local union. Um, for before you became a lawyer, yes. So how did you get into this line of work so young? I started as an organizer at 20. Wow. A, like, how did you find out about it? Like, I didn't even know. I, I'm way over 20, and I had no idea that you could do that at the age of 20. Well, it actually started much earlier than that. I had a job with the same boyfriend at, like, a predecessor to Home Depot, something called Rickles Home Center. When I was, I don't know, 15 or 16, and we tried to organize it. So we tried to organize it. We both got fired for doing that, even though that's illegal. Um, and my dad called me a communist and threw me out of the house. At the age of 15? Yeah. And I moved in with my boyfriend, Renee, and his family. Um, eventually, I moved back home. Oh, my but God. But it was uh, dramatic. And I, at that point, had no idea that it was a path. But, and of course, then I did all of my traveling around to colleges. And when I ended up at Rutgers, I took a class called Introduction to Labor Studies and fell in love and ended up doing a major, yet another major, in labor studies. And I decided I wanted to be a union organizer when I left. And I just started looking for jobs as now soon as I was done. explain exactly what that is because I don't know. A union organizer is someone that works for a union that goes around like Norma Ray in uh, yes. the famous movie Norma mm-hmm. Ray and uh, talks to people about why it's beneficial for their lives to sort of join together collectively and Mm -hmm. make their lives better. So you advocate for the workers then? Right. So where people are in a workplace where there is no union, right? right? And, but maybe someone's called the union and said, you know, things are bad here. We want a union. One of the things that happened to me early on was a law was passed that allowed public employees in Ohio to bargain collectively for the first time because those are state laws. And the union sent me there as an organizer. You know, we were we needed to organize 150,000 people. And I'm like 21 at this point, and yeah, I was working with a whole lot of other people, but it was daunting because you're trying to talk to an, adults who are working, who are fearful, and try to sort of get people to sort of move past their fear and they're looking at me like what does she know know? i feel like i'm guilty sometimes of looking at young people like that today i was like she she don't know nothing i'm just like no michelle she might know teach you something wow that's that's crazy that that's and that type of work is so critical to keeping the equilibrium in this country from keeping the one percent from taking over everything. One hundred percent. So yeah. you were doing this work in the started eighties. Started in the eighties, nineties, two thousand. I didn't go to law school until two thousand four. Wow. I went to law school at night while I was president wow. of CWA Local Ten Thirty Four, which was 
what, 16,000 what, member what union. Is, uh, mm -hmm. So who do you think that you helped the most in your labor career? Wow, that would be very hard to say. Well, okay, if there's one big victory that I'm most proud of is that we spent, my, my local help spearhead paid family leave in New Jersey. That's and I, huge! I worked on it for 12 long, hard years. And even though that was something that was going to benefit not just members of my union or other unions, but like every person that lives in New Jersey, um, and we finally passed it. And when that was signed, I felt such a That's sigh incredible. of relief. Yeah, and that so is New incredible. Jersey they is one of a few states. New York has it too. Yes. A few states that has paid family leave. So there are children that are alive now that are growing up or have grown up better because of you. I genuflect. Genuflecting on the air. So what did your parents think of your uh, work trajectory there? Was your dad still calling you a communist at this point? My dad hated it. But really? But we had an interesting but moment. But you were doing well for people like him. Was, what, was, what did he do for a living again? Did, he was a factory worker. He was a factory <laughs> worker. So what is the delicious little irony here is that you're basically advocating for better conditions and more rights for people like him, and he's calling you a communist? Still? There was a moment when um, my dad had a lot of health issues, and at one point, I, because people had called, was organizing the hospital that was in our town. We had moved to South Jersey, and this hospital, um, which my father had been in and out of a few times, the workers wanted organized. It was a big wall-to-wall -wall elections. It was a year and a half of, of working on this campaign with other people. But one of the things you do when you're organizing is house visits. You literally just go knock on people's doors at night, usually when they're not working, and say, you know, I'm Carla, I'm from CWA, I want to talk to you about the union, I want to talk to you about your job at Zerbrook. Um, and my father was nervous about me doing this at night. I mean, even though I was doing it in other places before this. So he decided to come with me. And once he heard the stories, so people would let me in and we'd sit in their living room and they would tell me about what their work life was like and how they weren't making any money and they had these bills and da 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 da. And my father's consciousness was completely turned around. For real? For real. Oh my God, that's it, so amazing. Because these were the same people that were taking care of him when not literally, but the same, right. you know, general people, and for him to hear their stories, so and he then got he it. did the full, full he got, turnaround. He yep, got it. He got it. Wow! I was actually afraid to let him come with wow. me because I thought he was going to say dumb shit, <laughs> <laughs> like you don't need that union. Oh my! But he God. did. You know, he listened, and uh, yeah, that was really amazing transformation. Did you used to record the stories at all, or did you just like listen? No, no, no. Yeah. Okay, because yeah. it's kind of like the way you were describing just going to someone's house and sitting in their living room and listening or their kitchen and listening to their stories, it reminded me of like a field work thing that people did exactly. in the 1930s exactly. with the WPA. Very similar. That it was like a exactly. project. So the People stuff, do that. We do this today. So, today this, it's still, so this still happens. Yeah. Thank God. Because this is work that is so necessary and so needed. So I guess I needed an education because this is the first time I really realized that this was a thing. There's, you know, a lot of misconceptions People have misconceptions about mm. unions, right? So yeah. unions sort of hit their peak back in the, you know, late 30s, 40s mm. in mm -hmm. terms of 
percent of the population that right. was unionized. We were at right. like 35, well, it was, it was protection because otherwise, how people how are people going to live? Right. They were going to make unions have been under, cents a day. under attack since, um, ever since. Right, and, and so now it's, they're it's almost a, done. Uphill battle. Yes. Um, I don't think we'll ever be done. I think there's a lot of yeah. different yeah. sort of formations yeah. Yeah. because when, you know, people act collectively, mm. they have a different voice. Yes. And that whether that's on the job or yeah. in the streets, yeah. right, they have a different voice than they can have on their own. Yeah. It's so like El it's, Pueblo Unido Nunca Serán Dividido, which means the people united will never be divided. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You, no, you, you, been, got, you uh, got a book there, Carla. It's been quite a ride. And so when I went to law school, yeah, I was of course I imagined... Next I was going to ask uh, you, like, what made you decide to become a lawyer? Like, was that the natural it was always It was always something in the back of my mind. Mm. And it was great. I actually absolutely loved law school itself. It was, and you started in 2004. Were you like the oldest in your class? Yeah, uh, by far. By yes, far, I really? Was. See, yes, it's funny. Yes. I, I would think that there would be a lot of people entering that a little bit later in life. Most, most people were like just straight out of college and wow. right in the law school. Wow, wow, wow. So you like know, grad, that's school, partly, grad school age. Yeah, grad, grad school, school age. Like 22, 23, yeah. 24, 25. And because it was nights, there were some other. But the problem with the law is that, you know, after you take the bar and you get admitted, you're still sort of a newbie, right? So well, you're, you're like an starting, intern. You're like right. an intern for, for so, med school, right? Right. So you, you know, you have to work, work your way so, up. So were you like the 40-year-old intern? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So well, let me, well, I just want to backtrack just a tiny bit. Yeah. When you were a union or, and this also applies to your law, law career, did you find being a woman um, or anything else in your background was either a hindrance or gave you extra props at, at that time? Well, it's, in, I mean, the labor movement is largely, leadership, right, of the labor movement generally, not just in New Jersey, is very male. You know, I stood out a little bit as a, as a woman. And, but, you know, it was interesting because I was always very forceful. Mm. And I'm a real believer in the work and in what we were doing. And, you know, I garnered a lot of respect. So I'd never, I had some like weird organizing incidents where people from another competing union slashed the tires in Ooh. my car and dumb stuff like that. But, but you never but felt physically no, threatened? No. That's good. No. That's no, good. and I always sort of, held myself out as if I was a 400-pound linebacker. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there's, obviously, there was sexism, well, right? Of course there's there was. sexism, there's, um, and I had fights, but, you know, you, you learn to sort of weigh in as hard as yeah. everybody else. But when, when, when we're from the same generation here, so we had to learn to toughen ourselves in a certain mm -hmm. way and just accept, well, this is the way they're going to behave. I have to rise up to it and not let it get to me. And then they'll see me as an equal on the playing field. Exactly. That's what I did. Yeah. Like, like the, you're going to tell a dirty joke, I'm going to out-tell the joke. I would say things at, at a jobs that I had, and the dudes would be like, what? What? <laughs> so I got... I got yeah. respect by being a potty mouth, and it's probably better that young women today maybe don't have to do that to to get respect. But in conversely, I kind of think that having to have to do that gives another dimension to us. 
It gives you resilience. It, it gives, yes, that was it the does. word I was looking for. Yep. It, it, we, 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 we can step up to the plate exactly. and, and, and not back off the plate. You know, my lame baseball reference. Anyway, yeah, back but, to law. So, yeah, so I went to law school, and then I, um, when law school was done, I took the bar, and I went to work for a small labor law firm. Surprise, labor law. <laughs> um, and, uh, but it, it was a small enough firm that it was, you know, I got into court quicker than mm. a normal associate would. Um, and while I was pre-law school, I had taught at Rutgers because I had mm. done my master's mm-hmm. there. I had done my, finished my undergrad, I did my master's, was teaching. And so then <clears throat> after uh, a while of the grueling nature of private practice, um, wow. I had the opportunity to go on the faculty full time and I took it. Because because life just hands you interesting moments. I'm the uh, president of the faculty union of the New Brunswick chapter. Rutgers has three chapters, and I'm in the middle of contract negotiations on behalf of the Rutgers faculty right now. So it's like wow, <laughs> back in the union. I was like, try to drag me out. So do you think? Um, do you think? Which need- I love. I love it. I mean, but I, you know, I can tell that you love it. Your, you, your eyes are sparkling, sparkling eyes on the air. <laughs> but your love and passion for this line of work is so evident. Yeah. I think that what you're doing is so necessary, and I think not enough people know that there are people like you that advocate for them. So yes. Yeah. The other thing I want to ask you is, so do you think we storytellers need a union? <laughs> that would be good, actually. Yeah. So how um, did someone, like, with, from your background, find out about storytelling and, and, and end up segueing into that? Well, the law is a little bit about storytelling. Well, yeah, which is the person that tells the most believable story to the jury is the one who's going to get the, the case in their favor. Right. Mine was a little bit of a fluke. I actually didn't know about... I mean, I knew the moth. I had been writing... I write memoir and I had been doing and and it was just a, this weird fluke that Adam Wade storyteller from Hoboken right storyteller extraordinaire 20 time uh, moth winner uh, his face was on the cover of something called HMAG in Hoboken oh, so okay. I read the story and it said he taught at the Magnet Theater so I called to see if there were classes and that was the beginning oh. I think that was either 2014 2000, no 2015 yeah, he's been and, teaching uh, for a while. He's been teaching for like yeah. eight, nine years there. Yeah. So and you, it totally turned me on to the whole... Wow. Did it change your life? I thought, of it, I thought of it as a way to help the narrative flow of my writing, mm. but it's totally different from my perspective. And it's just, I just sort of transitioned over and I'm doing less writing. And more, more performing. More performing. And it's, it is, as you know, it's a different... Yes. Sort of. Yes. There's two. It's two totally different types of writing. Exactly. But you had been doing your own personal writing for a while. Yeah. Were you doing short stories? Did you write? A, are you? No, I was kept writing in... memoir pieces. Oh, like and... essays, like long yeah. form essays. Yeah. Getting long published. Uh, I hadn't tried that. You know, there's a couple of pieces I was working on, hoping to submit to like Modern Love mm. in the New York Times. It just didn't do it. Yeah. Well, that but... Modern Love, it's like winning a moth grand slam. Exactly. Or exactly. Wow. Yeah. So the storytelling was just. I just found it fascinating. I also found that the um, storytelling audiences, my God, like some of the most accepting kind of supportive people. And so I just felt like it was a great medium. And you came in in an interesting time also because the moth had already blown up. When I came up in the moth, 
I came up with Adam. Oh, you in did? The, in the oh, early oh, okay. Yes, yes, yes. We, we, the two of us remember quite well when it was one slam a month at the New Eurekan Poets Cafe. Wow. So I know, I know Adam for, I don't know him well, but I know him for a number of years, and we've been in many shows together over the years, and I always thought that he was one of the most fantastic performers ever. He's just got this easy way about him he that does. makes audiences like... <laughs> Like he a does. magnet. Like the yeah. magnet. He yeah. attracts. Yeah. So you took Adam's class. Took um, Adam's class. Did took, he offers more than one class, yeah. I think? It's took like a regular, level. as yeah. advanced, and then I started just developing work. I did for a solo show, which I did at last year's SoloCon. Oh, right, right, right. Which was great, sort of. And it was interesting, because it was a weird um, moment in my life. At the beginning of 2015, I ended up having sort of two back-to-back kind of life-saving surgeries. I had oh, wow. a kidney transplant. Really? Which I got wow. a kidney from my beautiful friend, Janine, who I met in law school. Wow. Who gave me a kidney. And um, during that, they found a brain aneurysm. So I had brain aneurysm surgery just before the transplant, like three months, so- three months before. And that inspired me, though, to make sure that I actually start telling my stories, right? I mean, mm-hmm. writing is, is one thing, but it's like, you know, you might not have a lot of time. So you, they wouldn't have found the aneurysm had you not been going for the kidney transplant? Correct, yeah. Oh, my God. Talk about serendipity. Right? right? Incredible. I hate when people say things are meant to happen because, like, sometimes you want to punch them in the face. Like, <laughs> like no, I went through this yeah. and it was not meant to happen. But sometimes it's like that happy accident. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. You know, and, and also realizing... I needed to nurture the creative side mm. of myself. I am very committed as an activist, and I'm committed to the union, the labor movement, the law, but the creative side needs nurturing, too. So, yeah. like, basically for 30 years, you were another, another Carla. Exactly. So, so, actually, you could say about your, your two illnesses and your recovery is that there was a Carla before and a Carla after. A little bit, yeah. So yeah. did you take your first storytelling with Adam after? After. After. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. And what was your first storytelling show that you did besides um, Adam's showcase? Because I know he does showcases with, with, his, with his students. Um, wow, the first one. I'm going to tax my memory. I mean, was it a moth slam? Was it a book show? Was it a Oh, it was mic? probably a moth slam. Okay. Oh, yes, it was. Okay. It was a moth slam. Okay. Started going to slams and then other things like the tank other oh, yeah. venues. And, and you're absolutely correct that storytellers are some of the most supportive and accepting right? people around. Amazing. And yeah. I think storytellers want to see each other succeed. Yeah. Because I think maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm projecting, but I think we realize that there's lots of ideas to go around and you, you, don't, you don't get more for yourself by taking away from somebody else. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. And I think that the, um, you know, the, the, the aspect of being vulnerable, right, by standing up, telling a story that's true about yourself is definitely different than, I mean, you're vulnerable if you're a stand-up comedian, admittedly, yes. Yes. but, you know, it's not necessarily material that's about you. It no. doesn't necessarily make you no. vulnerable in front of an audience. Yeah. I actually, you know, I love the mix of humor and tenderness yes. that, you know, mm-hmm. you can sort of, even in a short story, yeah. you can sort of bring it all 
all the emotions yeah. in. The, the bittersweet comedy to me is the best. Yeah. The, uh, the bittersweet. Uh, the, I, yeah. I, I call it the bittersweet comedy. That's a good. That's a good way to phrase wow. it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so a little pescado. A little fish, because I don't mm-hmm. say little birdie. Yeah, this yeah. is the Shabbat show. It tells me that you have a story to share. I do. Well, let's get Absolutely. to it. So okay. Carla Katz is going to tell us a story. So I never really wanted kids. I spent my childhood walking on tiptoes, literally and metaphorically, waiting for an unexpected slap or a swat from my father. I was afraid that there was some sort of recessive gene inside me that might burst out of my chest like an alien if I had kids of my own. And so, no surprise, my dad and I had a sort of love-hate relationship. Um, he had a good side, though. He was a hard worker. Uh, he was sort of a legendary jokester. And one of his favorite pranks that he repeated many times in his hospital stays was to fill the plastic urinal that they hook over the side of the bed with apple juice and then lay in wait for someone to come in and then just sort of casually drink from the urinal, just absolutely loving his own jokes. And uh, I think, as I, as I said, he grew up in the East End of London, and at eight he was one of the millions of kids that was evacuated to the countryside in Operation Pied Piper. Um, and he spent part of that time tied to a tree uh, while the people that were supposed to be caring for him gave the care packages that my grandmother sent to their own kids. And when he was back in London, a year later, he joined a Jewish gang. You know, sounds like something Woody Allen would make up. Um, And he returned with an angry streak that I think had a lot to do with my own childhood of walking on tiptoes. I uh, got married when I was about 30 to my artist uh, painter husband, Larry, uh, who I met at Rutgers. Larry was uh, super cool. He used to wear bowling shoes and vintage Hawaiian shirts. And I told him when we met that uh, I didn't want kids. And he didn't either, so he said. But once we got married, the ticking of that mythical biological clock just got so loud that it drowned out our common sense. And bam, I was pregnant. And my alien fears just melted away. And I was just filled with this ecstatic, overwhelming joy. But a few weeks into the pregnancy, I felt like a wetness in my jeans, and I looked down to see that I was covered in blood, and I was petrified. I didn't want kids, but now I desperately did not want to lose this baby. And the thump, thump, thump of the baby's heartbeat when we got to the ER was honestly the best sound that I'd ever heard. But now I needed complete and total bed rest. And I spent my time, my quality time, with Vanna White on Wheel of Fortune and the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And Larry would fill this red and white Coleman cooler that was at my bedside with ice and water before he went to work. And it got incredibly lonely. And at the same time, my dad was home on disability. He'd had several heart attacks and a triple bypass by then. And during my adult life, we had rarely talked, mostly Father's Day, birthdays, holidays. Um, And he'd softened a little bit with age. 
And he was incredibly lonely too, so he started to call me. And uh, mostly we talked about weather and the news and what happened on Wheel of Fortune. But eventually enough time passed that we talked about potential baby names. And Larry's family had sent us this super weird list of uh, geographical baby names uh, that were in their family, like Tex and Houston. And so it became my dad's new obsession to call me every day with making fun of my in-laws. How's New Jersey? How's Wyoming? How's Montana? He got international. How's Croatia? How's Paris? We got so sick. Well, let me, I got so sick of the joke. He never let up. But he did eventually start telling me some stories about my childhood. And one day, out of the blue, he said, you know, I'm really sorry about that stuff that happened when you were a kid. And I knew, but I said, what stuff? And he said, you know, that stuff. And I simultaneously felt embarrassed and sad and grateful that we were finally beginning a conversation that we really needed to have. And then the next day he called, how's Florida? And we talked about cheers like nothing had ever happened. And then two days later, my dad died of a massive heart attack at the age of 59. And I shouldn't have been surprised given his health history, but he had been indestructible to me. And the family rabbi called to ask me not to attend my dad's funeral because it might endanger the baby's health. <clears throat> and so I spent that day on my bed, surrounded by friends, just hugely pregnant and hugely saddened. I thought about the fact that my dad would never meet this child, his first granddaughter, that he and I would never finish a conversation that we had barely begun. And it's Ashkenazi Jewish tradition <clears throat> to name a child after someone who's recently deceased to honor their memory. But I didn't do that. I would, though, despite everything, let him name her. And one week later, she was born healthy and perfect. Her name is Montana. Oh, my God, this is a story that you told in the day I should have. Ah! I didn't make the connection that I remembered. Oh, my God. Did you see, like, how I was trying to, like, not laugh yeah. and not cry? Oh, my God, what an amazing story. That is just... It was... Circle of life. Yes. Incredible. So how old is your daughter so, now? It's her golden birthday. She turns 27 on the 27th. Wow. I that, didn't even know golden birthdays were a thing. I didn't know there was a thing if either. If it's your day and your... Right. Well, yeah. that, that would have happened to me a long time ago because <laughs> I, my birthday is... the 19th. Yeah, right? mine is the 10th. So that happened a long time ago. One thing that I, I almost like burst out on is that your husband's name is Larry. Mm -hmm. My partner's name is Larry. Is that right? The worst name in the world. That's terrible. It's how, how did we end up with Larry? Oh, my God, right? the Larry. And, Larry. And, and my Larry's creative, too. He's a, he's a filmmaker and a cameraman. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. Artist yeah. Larry's. Artist Larry's. That's interesting. Great. Bonding yeah. over art, artist Larry's. That is cray. Yeah. So, wow. Just wow. So, what, are you going to be in any of the festivals? Where can people see you? Well, I'm the, if I'm lucky, at Moths. And... Uh, 
Adam Wade and I co-produced a show called On the Waterfront. That's in right. Hoboken. I was going to get to that. Right. And the what made you uh, segue into producing here? At the everything well, else, organizing. You know, it's another type of organizing. It was interesting because so many uh, people from Hoboken had come to see me at different venues. Oh, right. Like a caveat. Oh, when you did um, the... Solocon, oh, yes. yes. And then there was a, there's a show called New York City Secrets and Lies I was in. And I said to Adam, why don't, why don't we do this back home? You know, this... And we weren't sure there would be an audience in this. You know, it's not New York. It's New York adjacent. But uh, we sold out within a week and a half. We also had a fantastic lineup. It was a great experience, and this, you know, the town just embraced it. And it's, you know, Adam's like a superhero. His picture's up in oh, yeah. all the different bars and restaurants around Hoboken. He so could run for, it was he could run for, he for mayor. mayor. He could run for mayor. He talks about it. Yeah, yeah, I bet. And you know who would run his campaign? Those two nice old ladies, yes, Maria and his sister, yes, that lived yes, downstairs. Exactly. Oh my God, they're going to get such total shout-outs. Maria's getting a shout-out on this episode. Yeah, so we're in the in the process of scheduling. Another uh, Hoboken show. Fantastic. So, yeah. So maybe, maybe we'll see another On the Waterfront this fall. Yep. Abs- they absolutely will. Wow. Absolutely will, yeah. Wow. So if people want to get in touch with you about either uh, booking you on a show or for um, On the Waterfront, do you have a webpage for On the Waterfront? I, just Facebook. You can find me on Facebook as Carla Katz or at carlacats at gmail.com. Are and you on Instagram? Do you tweet? I'm on Instagram as C-A-Katz, C-A-K-A-T-Z, and find me. Yeah. <laughs> so um, there's a question that I asked everybody that, mm-hmm. that after our chat is done. So if you had a word or two of encouragement to any child who wants to be more than what society or their parents seem to be allowing them to be, and they have this yearning for something greater than themselves, but they don't see how they're going to get that or themselves out there to achieve it, what would you tell that child? Well, to keep your idea front and center and just keep moving towards it. My own brother is like an extraordinary example of that. When he was five, he said he wanted to be a heart surgeon. And we're holding on the bottom of the working class wrong. Um, and note, we didn't know any doctors. We didn't know. It just was, seemed like a pipe dream. And he, he maintained that idea from five through high school, through college. And honestly, none of us thought that it would happen. Um, but he was such perseverance. He got into med school and he shot to the moon. He was just a superhero the second he got in there, and he's been an extraordinary full-time surgeon since. And, you know, that, he taught me that lesson. Um, And also not to let setbacks carry weight. You need to let them, hold, hold them for a second and then toss them because, you know, they just weigh you down. And, you know, moving forward is sort of my mantra whatever's next, the next, and the next, and the next. And also that there's more people that love you than you can possibly imagine. Carla Katz, oh, I'm so uh, glad you were here. This is a pleasure. So, and I have a new friend now. Yeah. Well, we always end with a hug on the air. All right. Hug on the air. Woohoo!
With Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was another one of Carla's picks, Peace of My Heart, by Janis Joplin and Big Brother and the Holding Company from the Cheap Thrills album back in 1968. Well, kids, that's our show. If you like Fish Out of Agua or any of the other wonderful shows on Radio Free Brooklyn, you can sponsor us, donate. Just go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org forward slash donate and click on the tab and do what it says support living artists how cool is that well we're going to close with the last of carla's picks it's by prince when doves cry from purple rain in 1984 stay tuned for brooklyn bandstand next and we'll see you next week Woo-hoo!